Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, where we discuss all things about aliens, UFOs, and where we push the boundaries of knowledge. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Lori Olford. And I know at this point, I usually say that uh, conventional thinking is not allowed here. I always state that in good humor. Uh, all thinking is permitted here, to be fair. Uh, that's just my little whimsical way of saying that Lori and I push the limits of our understanding. So today, our topic is the significance the moon and the planet Mars may be not only in how our ancient ancestors, our alien ancestors, uh, utilized them a long time ago, but also the importance they have today in the ongoing extraterrestrial context. Hi, Lori. Hey, Joe. Yeah, so uh, let's dive right in and uh, talk, talk first about the moon. So it, it has always been an intriguing part of nature. Um, we see it change phases every month. It influences the tidal movement every day, and every so often, it passes in front of the sun to eclipse it from our view. Likewise, it turns blood red every so often as it passes through the Earth's shadow uh, to be eclipsed, um, as it did just, what, a couple of weeks ago? Yep. Yep. So the moon is actually pretty close to the Earth. Uh, it's about 250,000 miles, and I'm convinced that it was deliberately put there into its current orbit. Well, yeah, any theist would concur with that. Uh, they would say, of course it was put there. It was put there in its orbit by God. It's all part of intelligent design. Not true that. But what I mean is that it wasn't always in our sky and the way it is now. It was moved from somewhere else and put there, possibly be uh, artificial means several millions of years ago, perhaps just hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, we do have several creation stories, as we all know, but they do vary in their telling of how the moon came to be. Um, what, what did our ancestors and their religious beliefs say about it? Well, let's consider the mythology of the Zulu tribe of Zimbabwe, where it is believed that the moon is hollow and that reptilian-type beings live inside of it. Now, the story goes about two brothers, uh, Womane and Manku, the leaders of this reptilian race that stole the moon when it looked like an egg from the great fire dragon and removed the yolk inside of it. And then it was transported across the heavens um, to Earth, where it caused havoc on the planet in the past. So it's likely that this myth was altered over time with it you know, being told over and over again and details being either morphed or omitted right. the great fire dragon could have easily been an alien spacecraft used to transport the quarried or mined materials across the solar system the heavens um now the moon may have been taken from saturn as well um which has several moons and as according to the sumerian story pluto which is much smaller than our moon was indeed said to have been taken from saturn and this is indicated on the cylinder seal VA243, which shows Pluto in its original place, which was a moon of Saturn. Right. And, and the same text also says that our moon, which is a little larger than Pluto, about 600 more miles in diameter, uh, was made in the battle, um, a.k.a. collision, with Marduk and Tiamat. We see a sort of cosmologic theory unfold in this narrative as he and Kingu are brought into being in this battle, aka collision, in which Ki is 
the Earth, and Kingu is the moon. As this goes pretty well along with how some modern astronomers actually think of the moon forming out of a collision and breaking off from the Earth when it was a lot younger, uh, possibly from a planet called Tia, uh, resulting in its splintering and going off into space to coalesce into an orbiting satellite, a.k.a. the moon. Uh, some think it may have formed at the same time as the proto-Earth was aggregating and solidifying uh, way back when the material of the solar system was still condensing into the planets that are in existence today. And, and then there are those who think that it may have come from an entirely different part of the solar system and then later became captured by the Earth's gravitational pull. So, of course, in all three of these scenarios... Uh, it is believed that they, these processes would have happened billions of years ago, uh, hence long before humans were here. So, so then uh, where does that leave us with the mythology? Well, like we find with so many ancient stories, is that they are retold from even older stories, and which are in turn retold from yet even older ones. So if they just get passed down from generation to generation and from culture to culture, uh, maybe the source of this knowledge came from an advanced race who long ago taught it to our distant ancestors. And like with many other myths, um, there were errors, there were misunderstandings and corruptions in those translations. Um, so they don't you know, uh, correctly portray the information. They do reveal some fibers of truth, though. So there was a Zulu shaman named Credo Mutwa, uh, who actually just passed away about a year ago. Hmm. But, yeah, but he said that before the moon, things were different on Earth, uh, such as there were no seasons, and it was full of a watery mist that the sun couldn't even penetrate. Um, figure after the moon arrived and was put in its new orbit, it caused the Earth to tilt on its axis to where we now have the you know, 23.5 degrees to affect its rotation. Now, the moon is in a tidal lock or gravitational lock with the Earth. And this could also be what caused havoc on the Earth by means of the, the deluge, the, the flood. So we raise the question, do we find anything in the ancient text that refers to the moon not always being in the Earth's sky? And the answer is yes, we do. We do find references in Plutarch and Ovid, the Roman poets who wrote of the legendary Arcadians as, quote-unquote, older than the moon. Uh, Hippolytus, Democritus, Poascus, and Anaraxagoras, uh, and Lucian of Samosata all talk about there being a time in the Earth's history when there was no moon. These Arcadians were supposedly a very ancient tribe that dwelt on Peloponnese which is that big island that you see to the south of the mainland of Greece, if you're looking at a map of the Aegean or the Mediterranean. Uh, in mythology, that's where Pan lived. And many of these Greek and Roman writers thought of its inhabitants as being the first in Greece, who go so far back as to being there before there was a moon. Uh, we see this in other places as well. The tribes in the Bogota highlands of uh, Colombia tell of stories of an age before there was a moon. And in some Japanese lore, it is said that the moon was once put into the sky, wasn't always there, but was put into the sky by the god Tsukiyomi. Um, even H.G. Wells, the famous uh, British novelist, uh, wrote 
in his book, The First Men in the Moon, about it being hollow and being inhabited by these insectoid creatures. So this notion seems to be pretty prevalent uh, of the moon either being hollow or else not always being present in the sky. Well, uh, and also there was the uh, race of people called the Procellanes, um, who were referred to as those before the moon as well. So the theory that the moon came from somewhere else and was pulled into orbit by Earth's gravity, that could have occurred more recently than, than billions of years ago, perhaps just a few million years ago, or even a hundred or so thousands of years ago. If an extraterrestrial race was actively and deliberately involved with, with that occurrence. Now, I know it sounds very far-fetched, but, um, you know, about a few things here, but our moon is definitely a strange thing. And in the words of the famous science fiction author Isaac Asimov, um, it is the most unlikely of all coincidences. In other words, it should not be there. It is bigger than it should be. Yep. And it orbits the Earth in a manner uh, that is unlike other satellites of any other planets. Um, its proximity in relation to its size and distance is perfectly in a place to stabilize the Earth and give us ocean tides and allow us to make that ac uh, the accurate calendars that we have today. Um, also, because it is in just the right proximity with the Earth and Sun, it perfectly covers the, the photosphere during a solar eclipse. This isn't the case with the moons of other planets. So you have to ask, you know, how could a cataclysmic collision or a celestial passage have caused this? Now, I guess you can say that it could be a coincidence for there to be a collision. And then another coincidence for it to go into a perfect position to incubate the Earth. And another coincidence of it being of just the right size and to rotate, you know, synchronously uh, with the Earth's rotation so that the same side always faces it. The moon is mathematically perfect in its size and position. Yeah, the moon does have some peculiarities. It, it's almost, uh, it's actually almost like a binary planet with Earth. Uh, it is much larger than the moons of other planets in proportion to their uh, sizes being about, is what, one-sixth of the mass of Earth in comparison to those of Jupiter and Saturn being on a scale of thousands of times smaller. Uh, the only other planet that has a satellite close to the same ratio was Pluto and its moon Charon. Uh, oddly, they are also in synchronous rotation, just like the Earth and the moon. And this puts it into uh, the tidal lock, which actually gives some uh, stability to the angular velocities of these bodies. Now, like you said, we have a good bit of regularity in our natural environment here because of the celestial mechanics of the Earth, Sun, and Moon that give us predictability in the tides, the eclipses, and the phases. Uh, this has helped us conceive the concept of a month, with 12 of them being in a year. Uh, there are really two types of lunar months. One is based on the time it takes for the moon to complete a full orbit of the Earth with respect to the stars. That's called the sidereal month. The other is based on the time it takes the moon to complete a full cycle of phases, called the synodic month. A synodic month is longer, at like 29.5 days, than a sidereal month, which is at like 27.3 days, uh, because the Earth is moving while the moon goes through its phases. But because of the distances and masses of the Earth, sun, and moon are trigonometrically factored the way they are, 
the synodic and sidereal periods never vary by more than half a day. It's like a perfect balancing act. Well, what's really uncanny in its relationship to Earth are the rumored reports from NASA scientists about several unnatural structures being found on the moon, not to mention being on Mars as well. Of course, these reports are contested and denied by the government and said, if they're anything, they are natural features. It's funny how some people are quick to accept what NASA has to say, without question. Um, In almost every article I've read on this subject, and they use many of the same words, such as, you know, it could be, it's possible, or we believe. And then they continue on by giving their best opinion on the subject. However, when it comes to explanations offered in support of alien intelligence, they, they say with a little sarcasm that it can't possibly be aliens. Um, they dismiss it immediately. And this is the problem with mainstream science. Academies and government officials are a clandestine group of people who I believe Neil Armstrong was referring to when he mentioned once in his uh, speech about those who protect all of us from certain truths. So it makes us wonder then as to what truths they know of and are protecting us from. And, you know, I've always been sort of, um, how you say, underwhelmed by the public appearances of the Apollo astronauts and how they would present their statements. And I've wondered if the whole experience sort of deeply and fundamentally changed them, you know, like it affect their psyches. Uh, maybe because they saw something there that changed their understanding of everything, like, you know, something alien. Yeah, well, they never said much about it. They, they've mostly been pretty quiet, uh, even after they left NASA. Uh, and I know Michael Collins did write about his life as an astronaut in his memoirs, but none of them really ever say much of anything personal about it. And they never seem to show any exuberance or vigor. They almost seem like they want to shy away from even talking about the lunar missions at all. You know, one instance that comes to mind is their press conference in 1969 after their return, and uh, they couldn't appear to be more uncomfortable, more awkward, more stiff, and even constipated. They almost looked like they didn't know what to say, and and to me, that's strange. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that too, and they look real stressed, almost traumatized. Yeah, like they were following a very rigid script. And they weren't allowed to say anything spontaneous or genuine about going to the moon or about space travel. I mean, here are the first guys in the world to ever do this. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong are the first human beings to ever step foot on the moon. That's, that's incredibly huge. That's like mega huge. And yet they look like they're afraid of being seen in public and seem almost mortified to talk about anything about what they did. Uh, so for our listeners out there, if, if you go to uh, YouTube, you can look this up on YouTube and uh, put, enter in the search, uh, Apollo 11 astronauts host the mission press conference dated August 12, 1969. And you'll see what we mean. Uh, something isn't right with them. They look, like you said, traumatized. I mean, Neil Armstrong looks like he's trying to pass a kidney stone. Now, I know there are conspiracy theorists out there who say that we didn't actually go to the moon, that the whole thing was a stunt, that it was all staged, and that this behavior of the astronauts sort of coincides with that notion, kind of being like their consciences are bothering them about what they're saying in public because they know it's not true. Now, I think we did indeed go to the moon. It was not an elaborate scheme carried out by the U.S. government. 
Uh, yeah, me too. Um, it would be more difficult to keep something like that under wrap than trying to conceal information about alien findings on the moon. Um, a hoax on that scale seems very unlikely. It would require extensive cover-up by NASA, the Defense Department, and all the project contractors, all the universities, uh, truly the entire military-industrial complex, but uh, plus all the congressional committees that played a part in the funding and federal acquisitions uh, that were a big part of it as well. Yeah, not only that, but it would have had uh, been for nine times. We went to the moon nine times, so that's nine times that the whole narrative would have had to be fabricated so as to deceive the world about famed lunar landings. Right. So I think it's more elementary and intuitive to think that the information they found out during the lunar missions was for the most part deemed classified. And that's why we see the Apollo astronauts so withdrawn, almost so reserved in what they had to say. Uh, I'm sure they were ordered, perhaps even threatened by their superiors not to disclose anything about the missions except for what was provided for them to say in those phony sounding speeches. Yeah, exactly. But, but still these, these astronauts have not portrayed themselves publicly in the way you would expect for guys who achieve something that no one else in all of human history ever did. Uh, that's, there's still something about them that's off. They're just not right. Um, sure. You can, you can even say, well, the whole experience was pretty intense, you know, going from the earth to the moon and then back again. Maybe they were just psychologically numb during the, that press conference. Maybe the whole experience did shake them up and scared them. I mean, I can only imagine what that would be like to do. I mean, it's okay. Um, perhaps that's so. But the thing is, they were always like that when they were talking about the lunar missions. I mean, all of them, Alan Beam, Ed White, James Irwin. None of them had anything substantial to ever say about the moon trips. Even years afterwards, they, they give the impression of being uh, sort of timid. Uh, really, the only one who's been pretty vocal about any of this is Buzz Aldrin. And he, he, he seems kind of scripted and robotic at times. Uh, really, the only thing he says with any passion is that we definitely, undeniably, uh, undoubtedly, unequivocally went to the moon. And that's really about it. And you also need to remember that these were highly trained pilots, fighter pilots, probably the most skilled, experienced, advanced, and, and proficient in the world at the time. So they weren't like the average person who, yeah, would have found this as an adrenaline rush in a way that would have stunned someone to being almost, uh, say what, speechless. Mm -hmm. uh, these guys live this stuff 24-7. Flight training, zero-gravity simulation. Uh, G-force exposure, orbital mechanics, rocket engineering, you name it. They were intelligent, focused, they were motivated and disciplined. So to see them this sheepish um, in their public appearances and to not have anything profound to say, that does seem very odd. Yeah, you know, I remember my daughter and I were watching the series The Crown on Netflix and in the one episode, Prince Philip invites the three Apollo 11 astronauts to one of his palaces in England so he could talk to them personally about their lunar mission. So Prince Philip was a pilot. Uh, he earned his wings with a, with a little help from the Royal Air Force. <laughs> and he was a real aviation buff. He was big into technology and engineering. And he was enthralled with the, the Apollo missions. So he has them go over there and, and visit him. So being the husband of the Queen of England, you can arrange for these kind of things. 
And um, in the episode, he sits down with them in one of the elegant drawing rooms of the palace. And he says that he doesn't want to ask any technical questions. Instead, he wants to hear from them what it was really like going to the moon. Uh, he wants to know what it was like spiritually and emotion emotionally. And what were they feeling and thinking as they were looking out to the vastness of space and then touching the soil of the moon? What was going through their minds as they were becoming the first human beings uh, to do this and to see the moon up close like that? He was asking a deep question. And they gave him nothing. And they're like, well, you know, we didn't even have time to notice or look outside the window. Yeah, we were, we were too busy monitoring all the controls and instruments and going over all of our checklists and manuals. Yeah, that's right. We were just too focused on all these operational steps and all the procedures. It was like hundreds of procedures. But, you know, what was funny is that the, the water cooler in the lunar module was making a strange <laughs> noise. Now, why couldn't those engineers at Grumman have given us a quiet water cooler? Ha, 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 ha. And, and you can just see Prince Philip is like dumbfounded. He's like, what? The water cooler? You go all the way to the moon and, and that's what you remember? <laughs> And those guys were always like that. They hardly ever embellished on what it was like for them personally. Uh, they never answered any deep question about it. And I'm sure there, there was a lot more they could have said. And, and I, there was probably a lot more they wanted to say, but were forbidden to do so. It's, it's like they were brainwashed into saying a scripted, nonsensical bunch of talking points of which they could not and would not deviate no matter what, even when they went to their graves, the ones who you know, now passed away. So it, it does make you wonder if they didn't encounter something there uh, that maybe they never in all their lives expected to see, that they may have come face to face uh, with actual hard evidence of aliens, and maybe it truly and profoundly did shock them. It's, it's also a little strange that we haven't been back to the moon since 1972. And if you remember, the Apollo project ended rather abruptly. Uh, it was just done, Yeah. Po possibly for budgetary reasons, possibly for political reasons. Um, but it could be that NASA learned about that moon and that maybe it, it is and always has been inhabited by extraterrestrial species. Um, they may have found structures, as some believe, uh, that show it was or is used as way stations or a logical or logistical support, rather, a base for aliens, uh, perhaps the Anunnaki from long ago. Now, what's interesting is that there is a more recent theory about the moon being caught by the Earth's gravitational pull in that one suggestion and sort of uh, stolen from Venus. Uh, could it be that there is some truth found in that Zulu mythology, uh, the two brothers stealing the moon from the great fire dragon, which could mean the sun? Obviously, the moon did not have a yolk like an egg, as they said, but this is how the ancients told their story without having their uh, the scientific vocabulary or knowledge to explain it as we do today. But there's something yet more interesting in the Zulu story, and that is the two brothers, Womain and Makpu, um, are also known as the Water Brothers. And they are described as having skin with fish-like scales, much like what we find in the Sumerian story of Enlil and Inki, who are said to have splashed down in the Persian Gulf and emerging from the water. They, too, are depicted on cylinder seals as looking half men, and half fish, something Zechariah Sitchin explained about the Anunnaki in the Earth Chronicles. Now, the theory I use to support my belief that the Anunnaki placed our moon into its present orbit is based on a Cardassian scale. 
It is a classification method to determine civilization's level of advancement in technology and energy production. At the time of our creation, approximately 250,000 years ago, the Anunnaki were a type 1 civilization. This means they were advanced enough to control a planet and its atmosphere. However, I also believe that they were um, on the verge of becoming a type 2 civilization, if not already, meaning they are able to completely or almost completely harness the energy put out by a sun. Uh, we are currently not even a type 1 civilization, which means it is difficult for us to conceive the idea of something like moving a moon into a new orbit. So what type would we be with this categorization? Would we be called type zero? Yeah, more or less. Um, I, I believe, yeah, we are probably at type zero. Uh, I mean, we are able to put artificial satellites into orbit. Uh, we're able to launch them into space and alter the trajectories of spacecraft by either opposing or using the pull of gravity of the Earth or other celestial body. But to be able to change the path or orbit of a natural satellite, that obviously requires a different level of engineering, possibly utilizing or utilizing a complete form of energy or, or uh, fuel. Yeah, and at our stage, it's difficult to conceptualize what uh, that kind of mechanization and innovation would really look like, uh, just like it was difficult for people thousands of years ago to visualize or comprehend things like flight and electronics and uh, the superior materials we now use for construction of uh, buildings and other, other um, structures on, on the earth. Yet today, we uh, almost all completely are familiar with them and the sight of them doesn't blow our minds. We are not, our minds are not blown at seeing superhighways or these uh, tall skyscrapers. Um, thousands of years ago, it would have uh, blown our minds back then. Right. It's difficult for some of us to grasp this notion as being anything other than you know, imagination. But like you just said, uh, what was at one time imagination is now reality, just as it was with the realities of the ancient past. At any given point in our history, we are somewhat limited in our view of our world and our universe. Things that were once impossible are now possible, just as things that are now impossible may very well be possible. Uh, it was once impossible for an iron ship to sail the ocean. It was impossible for man to fly aircraft. Uh, it was once impossible to travel faster than the speed of sound. So much of science fiction has become science fact just within our own lifetimes. So when people affirm that it is impossible uh, for us to discover that a civilization from another world can travel across the galaxy to get here, well then, I, I definitely think that there is room for debate there. Yeah. There's also the uh, Type 3 civilization, which according to that scale devised by Nikolai Kardashev, is one that is capable of uh, harnessing the energy, not just of a planet or of a star, but of an entire galaxy. Yeah, so think of Star Wars, the original one, A, a, a New Ope, um, where we were introduced to a powerful space station called the Death Star. Uh, you remember Han Solo saying from inside the Millennium Falcon, there is a small moon out ahead of him. And Obi-Wan Kenobi says, well, that's no moon. It's a space station. Don't forget. <laughs> well, <laughs> of course, this is science fiction, um, but it is a parallel notion to ancient Zulu myth and uh, about the moon being hollow and inhabited. And much like the Death Star, uh, it is also being capable of moving 
through space to become a satellite of any planet planet it chooses. Uh, so what if the moon is more space station and less moon? Yeah, strangely, there is a moon of Saturn called Mimas. And when you look at that picture uh, of it that was taken by the Cassini spacecraft uh, many years ago, you see it actually does look like the Death Star with that big crater on the surface. Kind of weird. Yeah, so the Star Wars universe would be more like the Type 3 civilization, you know, with the Empire Empire being able to travel throughout an entire galaxy and, and rule over it. Again, science fiction. However, the Zulu description of the hollowing out moon makes me wonder if the Anunnaki could possibly have done something to it. Uh, recall that during the Apollo 12 mission, the astronauts deliberately uh, crashed the ascension stage of the LEM uh, onto the uh, the moon surface, so as to create a blast. The seismometers were placed on the surface when the astronauts were there, and scientists were able to analyze the seismic wave patterns that were measures and transmitted back to Earth. Um, and the report was that it reverberated for about 45 minutes, much like the way a bell was rung. Yeah, I believe the same thing was done during Apollo 13, but with the stage three of the Saturn V rocket, it was put onto a trajectory course with the moon. Uh, of course, that was all carried out before uh, the explosion happened in their service module, forcing them to uh, abort the, the mission. But the uh, reverberation or ringing uh, on that occasion went on for an hour. Well, this made many believe that the moon is hollow. Um what better way for the Anunnaki to keep an eye on their creation, right, than to place a large satellite disguised as a natural moon um, to monitor the, the Earth and dispatch spacecraft to its skies? Maybe it is just like old Ben Kenobi said, that's no moon. It is a space station. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so to com- contemplate a hollow moon, you have to wonder if it could really be an, a, an artificial object and not a natural one. It does seem by all observation and study to be a natural celestial body and one that has an age of billions of years. It did experience tremendous bombardment by meteorites, as is attested by the multiple craters and uh, on its surface. And it appears that this occurred a very long time ago, uh, as the surface of the moon has not been undergoing any noticeable changes in quite a long time. So this bombardment was probably going on when there was still a lot of dispersed material floating around in the younger solar system. Uh, it seems like even if it was moved into place uh, within its five-degree orbital inclination, that it is a natural and a very old object. Uh, so the possible hollowness uh, of it is still ambiguous. The seismic bell ringing that was detected during the Apollo missions uh, has not been explained other than it having something to do with the moon possibly um, having a mantle and a stenosphere that aren't as fluid as those of the Earth. Um, you know, the moon's rock layers could be just more rigid than Earth's rock layers. Well, let's, let's uh, you know, go back to uh, imagining how something like the moon could be moved in, in space. If planet Nibiru was passing by Earth sometime between between 11,000 to 13,000 years ago, it could very well have passed by Saturn, uh, being that we think it is a fairly large planet, uh, larger than Earth, then its gravitational pull could have our moon out of its orbit with Saturn. Uh, This may have moved it into a new orbit with Earth, thus causing the shift in its axis 
that may have brought about tectonic and climatic changes that uh, we were taking or that we see taking place with the Neolithic revolution of the time. Um, there is a reference to Nibiru once passing through a unique alignment, which uh, pooled on the, the seven planets, but the moon was almost affected. It states that the appearance of Nibiru saved the darkened moon and made it shine forth in the heavens once again. So this is likely explaining how the moon was pulled from an orbit where people couldn't see it, at least not very well, uh, to its present position in an equatorial uh, orbit with respect to Earth. So this provides a logical explanation, I think, uh, given what we know about the elaborate celestial mechanics of the moon and Earth. Furthermore, uh, it would support much of the hypothesis of the uh, symbolism from the stories of ancient cultures like Atlantis and the Great Flood. Now, these tales cannot just be you know, some strange coincidence that appeared in the lore of that time in the past. They may be an actual record of some sort. Now, why would these ancient people tell of, the, of such things, like the moon being brought here? Um, what what did they know and pass on in their oral traditions to future generations? I am of the opinion that these stories didn't randomly appear out of the imagination of some shaman or scribe. Um, I believe they told these stories to share with us uh, what they knew happened back then. And yeah, not only does the moon have a special relationship to the Earth, so to speak, but so does the planet Mars. Many scientists think that uh, at one time it was very similar to the Earth with a substantial atmosphere as well as a hydrosphere. Uh, they found evidence of running water, dust storms, and volcanoes on its surface, in addition to a planetary magnetic field and a tilted axis angle close to that of Earth's. They know there is still water there. Uh, much of it is in the polar ice caps. And they also know that there's oxygen, uh, but a much higher carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. Uh, indeed, people have for quite some time thought that there may be life on Mars. And while the unmanned spacecraft sent there have not found life, it seems to be the most, quote, unquote, Earth-like planet out there. Yeah, so according to Zechariah Sitchin's books, um, the planet Mars was a waypoint for the Anunnaki and their mining operations. It was there that the Aegigi uh, also worked to refine the gold in whatever way that was for transport on the freighter ships, and then to continue on to Nibiru and be dispersed in its atmosphere. Uh, in the Lost Book of Inki, he tells the story of a former king of Nibiru named Alalu as being banished to Lamu, where he died. Lamu is the Sumerian name for Mars. After his death, uh, plans were made to build way stations for trips between Nibiru and Earth. The first one was to be on Lamu, Mars, where the 300 Gigi were deployed to work, and then the second one on the moon. But get this, the tablet goes on to describe how, uh, how Alalu was respected for once being a king on Nibiru and therefore the first king to die on another world. Now, after finding his bones in a cave on Lamu, they built a monument around him to resemble his face wearing a helmet. Well, that's the face we see on Mars in 1976 picture taken by the Viking spacecraft. According to the Sumerians, Alalu's monument was to, was to always face the toward Nibiru. Now, NASA, of course, claimed to have better imaging taken of the face and says that there are no eyes, there's no nose or mouth. However, after looking at these new pictures, 
you can still pick out where these features are seen with a huge crack down the middle. Remember, some people have no issue believing what NASA says, no questions asked. It's a possibility that this is the monument of a, a, a of a um, Alalu, but um, it had corroded in the Martian climate over the thousands of years since it was built. So they could have tried to doctor up those pictures, uh, one of the many protective layers of truth uh, used in order to not cause public panic. Uh, something else interesting is what um, Buzz Aldrin once said in an interview rather openly. He stated that, well, there's a monolith on Mars, Moon Phobos. When people find out about that, they will ask, who put that there? <laughs> you have to wonder how we could have gotten away with saying that. Yeah, I know, right? Like uh, since the 1940s, the, the prospect of sending humans to Mars has increased significantly. And the U.S. and other countries plan to go there by as early as the 2030s now. So what's intriguing is the thought that astronauts are already there. <laughs> Let's take what uh, Hayam Ished said just last year. And he's the, the former Israeli defense minister. He's quoted as saying, well, there is an underground base in the depths of Mars. He goes on with, there is an agreement between the U.S. government and the aliens. He said that he's coming forward now because it seems that the public is more receptive to such disclosure, um, but that even five years ago, he may have gotten into trouble for saying such things. But now he has nothing to lose. Yeah, and before that, before, before he was the uh, defense minister, he was Israel's chief of space security. Uh, so he is definitely a big name. He is not like one of the regular staff personnel or the IT guy. Uh, he was an actual member of the Israeli cabinet. Right. And he also said that he believed that former President Trump was going to disclose all of this, but then was requested not to because the American concern of there being panic and hysteria. However, the Pentagon did announce that it is setting up the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force in order to improve its understanding of and gain insight into the nature of the and the origins of these uh, UAPs, which is a fancy way of saying strange things in the sky. And I think it was in uh, 2005 that Peter Hellyer, um, former defense minister of Canada, he said something similar to Hayam Eshed. He actually stated a few things at an Ottawa conference that were uh, politically controversial, but he did claim uh, that at least four alien species have been visiting Earth for thousands of years, and that mm. they've helped contribute to humanity's progress, and that there is a galactic federation of alien races out there. Now, do these declarations sound strange? Yeah, yeah, they do. But you, you have to wonder, you, know, you have to understand, um, these guys are top officials with their country's governments. They aren't people on the fringe working in the basements of parliaments and bureaucracies. They are major players in the geopolitical arena, arena. So you have to wonder if the reason they're saying these things is because they truly know something, and they would definitely be in uh, positions to know these things. Yeah, and, and then you have um, the Florida Senator Marco Rubio being heard saying, um, it was, um, we have things flying over our military bases and places where we're conducting military exercises and we don't know what it is. Um, and it isn't ours. So I strongly believe we are on the verge of disclosure. Yeah, supposedly the Pentagon is going to release a report this month to the Senate Intelligence Committee. So we might 
find out more about all this sooner than later. And this is where I'd like to briefly talk about the secret space program, um, which many believe goes all the way back to the Second World War. There may be secret bases on the moon and on Mars and under Antarctica. And that's according to a recent article by The Sociable, which also claims that our military technology is decades ahead of its time. I've always believed this. Um, but even right now, as we speak, um, they are more advanced. UFO sightings may just be the result of human uh, programs funded by a so-called black budget. There may even be a clandestine group of people who have ex access to advanced extraterrestrial technology that even top government officials may know nothing about. Yeah, it's kind of like the Illuminati, uh, or kind of like DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, which for 60 years has been extremely shadowy and secretive in what they uh, carried out for the military industrial complex. You can almost think of it as like the hub of a wheel with the spokes being all the research, development, and manufacturing entities that are within the government, uh, the armed forces, um, commercial contractors, and academia. And they all come under the orchestration and funding from DARPA. Uh, usually you don't know what DARPA is doing unless you're working for them. And it is really really could be the mothership of any of the reverse engineering programs that are out there. Well, you know, back in 2006, there was a, a Scottish systems administrator um, known as Mr. McKinnon. I forget his first name, but uh, he, he was charged with uh, hacking into U.S. military and government computers, claiming to have found top secret documents about UFOs and photographs of cigar-shaped objects that had later been you know, airbrushed out of satellite images. Um, he also found references to what we, what, what were called non-terrestrial officers and something about their transfers to ships that had never been heard of before. Um, there was even information about wrecked spacecraft, like from Roswell and other places that were taken and then used in reverse engineering. Uh, obviously, you know, once officials found out what he was doing, he was kicked out of the system. I'm sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. So to be honest, I, uh, I believe that there is a good possibility that we may very well have secret bases on the moon and on Mars and that there are alien spaceships traversing the solar system. I always say that if we can build giant aircraft carriers down here, then why is it uh, hard to fathom that they can build giant spacecraft carriers up there? Yeah, you know, not very long ago in human history, uh, the one was just as inconceivable for us to envision as the other. And uh, so with that, we're out of time. So we hope you all like the show today, and we're certainly glad that you joined us for this topic. Yeah, next week, uh, Joe and I are we're going to discuss the Great Flood. Um, it's uh, most mostly known to us through the biblical story of Noah's Ark, but we find references in many other sources from around the world that speak of cataclysms of the past that either nearly wiped out humanity or in the very least to um, bring about major changes to the planet. So we hope you'll tune in for that. Uh, we also have a pretty good lineup for the next few months where we'll cover a lot of fascinating subjects. Um, and this includes having uh, on some guests who provide valuable insight into our discussions discussions so um so we we do look forward to uh to that yeah we definitely do and 
And Lori and I would like to remind our listeners that an annular eclipse is going to be happening this Thursday, June 10th. Uh, those are pretty spectacular to see. So hopefully, uh, if you're in a part of the world where that'll be visible, uh, you'll get a chance to observe that. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be visible in Europe, Russia, Eastern Canada, and uh, Eastern U.S. I think it's uh, something like 6.20 to 6.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Right, and those are the places where you'll see the, the full annular eclipse of the partial uh, viewing of it can be in other parts of the country and other parts of the world and like Asia and other parts of uh, like the western part of North America. So just don't look directly at it, please. <laughs> and, uh, and with that, until next time, uh, stay safe out there, uh, stay peaceful, and most of all, always stay curious. Take care, folks. Uh, so long, everyone, and thanks for joining us.